0: I'm sure that most of you here this morning are familiar with the Christmas story as told in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. Those are the two Gospels that basically give us the Christmas story. Matthew tells about the announcement of the birth of Jesus from Joseph's point of view, and Luke tells the announcement of the birth of Jesus from Mary's point of view. Matthew tells about the angel's instructions to Joseph to name the child Jesus, and Luke tells about Gabriel's visit to Mary to inform her of her conception and to name the child Jesus. It is Matthew who tells of the visit of the wise men, but Luke's gospel gives the fullest account of the story of the birth of Jesus. Luke tells about the decree from Caesar Augustus, The trip to Bethlehem, the lack of room in the inn, the actual birth of Jesus, the wrapping of the babe in swaddling cloths, the visit of the angels to the shepherds, and the visit of the shepherds to the manger. But John, which was written much later than both Matthew and Luke, doesn't tell about any of these things. However, that doesn't mean the gospel of John is silent about God's gift of his son. Matthew and Luke tell a great deal about it it historically, but John tells us a great deal about it theologically. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 16 is the Christmas passage in John's gospel. Let's turn there together to the gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, this passage culminates with maybe the most monumental verse in all the Bible, John 3, 16. So turn to John 3 and follow along as I read verses 1 through 16. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do. Unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is Christmas in John's Gospel. You see, John doesn't begin his Gospel like Matthew and Luke do. Matthew and Luke tell about the birth of Jesus... But John begins his gospel much further back. He goes all the way back to eternity past. Chapter 1 of John's gospel opens like this. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So John doesn't begin his gospel with the birth of Jesus. Instead, he begins in eternity past to show that Jesus is the eternal God. But that doesn't mean that John ignores the incarnation because he mentions it just a few verses later in chapter 1, verse 14, where he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So here in verse 14, John does tell us Jesus took on human flesh. He became a man. But John does not record the birth of Jesus, which is why I said that John 3, 1 through 16 is the Christmas passage in John's gospel. The importance of John chapter 3 cannot be overemphasized. In verses 1 through 16, which we just read a moment ago, Jesus tells a man by the name of Nicodemus about eternal life. Interestingly, this is Jesus' first discourse on the subject of eternal life in the Gospel of John. That's why this passage is so important. What could possibly be more important than the subject of eternal life? Jesus himself said in Matthew 16, 26, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? So this passage deals with one of the most basic, one of the most fundamental, one of the most important issues of the Bible, and that is the subject of the new birth. And the new birth is a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. One day, Benjamin Franklin received a letter from the well-known British preacher George Whitfield. This is what Whitfield wrote to Benjamin Franklin. I find that you grow more and more famous in the learned world. As you have made such progress investigating the mysteries of electricity, I now humbly urge you to give diligent heed to the mystery of the new birth. It is a most important and interesting study, and when mastered, will, will richly repay you for your pains. Quote. I would say the same thing to you this morning. The new birth is not sort of a, you know, take it or leave it issue. Every human being who has ever lived and will ever live must come to terms with the new birth. In John 3, 7, Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born anew. And the you, by the way, in that verse is plural. So no one is exempt from the necessity of the new birth. With that in mind, let's look at this text together. Verse 1 of John 3 tells us, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. As we are introduced to this man named Nicodemus, we are told two facts about him here in verse 1, and we pick up another fact from verse 10. Here are the three facts. Number one, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Number two, Nicodemus was a ruler. And number three, verse 10 tells us that he was an important teacher in Israel. To really appreciate this passage, it's important for us to understand these three aspects of this man's life. So let me detail each of them individually. First of all, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was a Jewish man who made a pledge that he would spend his entire life observing every detail of the scribal law. This involved a strict adherence to even the minute details of the regulations that the scribes made up about the Mosaic law. Let me give you a couple of examples to give you an idea of what this involved. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, God told the Jews, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Now, that's a simple enough command. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. But the scribes took that simple command and worked out all sorts of extra rules and regulations related to the Sabbath day. In the Mishnah, which is the codification of scribal law, the section on the Sabbath is 24 chapters long. So they had taken that simple command of God... And had expanded it to 24 chapters, if you can believe that. In the Talmud, the section explaining the Sabbath law runs 64 and a half columns. You say, well, what, what could they say in all of that, you know, uh, what, all the, what all was said in all of that voluminous writing? Well, let me give you an idea. They said this. Here's one example. They said, To tie a knot on the Sabbath day is illegal because it is work. But if you could tie or untie the knot with one hand, that is okay. So from there they made a list of acceptable and unacceptable knots. Here was one of the acceptable ones. It is okay for a woman to tie a knot in her girdle. So, if a man wanted to draw water from a well... He would tie the bucket to a woman's girdle to let it down because tying a knot in a rope on the Sabbath day was illegal, but not tying a knot in a girdle. That's what they did. And I could multiply illustrations of all of these ridiculous rules and regulations the scribes worked out, but you get the point. The scribes worked out all of these details, but it was the Pharisees who dedicated their lives to keeping them. The title Pharisee means the separated one. It was the Pharisees who separated themselves from all ordinary life in order to keep every detail of the law of the scribes. Now, verse 1 tells us Nicodemus was a Pharisee, which means this was a very religious man. Secondly, verse 1 also tells us He was a ruler of the Jews. That means Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a court of 70 men who had religious jurisdiction over every Jew in the world. Not just the Jews in Palestine, every Jew in the world. So if you were a member of the Sanhedrin, you were indeed a ruler of the Jews. Then the third important bit of information we are given about Nicodemus comes from verse 10. Nicodemus was a highly respected teacher in Israel. In fact, the way verse 10 is worded indicates that Nicodemus was either the top teacher in Israel or one of the top teachers in Israel. We know that because the definite article appears in verse 10. You are the teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus was quite a man. In fact, it's it's shocking that he would even want to talk to Jesus. But there was something eating away in the mind and heart of Nicodemus. He realized that Jesus was no ordinary man. And in verse 2, we are told this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Probably the reason Nicodemus came by night was because he didn't want to associate with Jesus openly. That seems to be what John is implying here as well as chapter 7 and chapter 19 when he speaks of Nicodemus. If that is the case or was the case, then Nicodemus was a man who did not have the courage of his convictions. He didn't want to associate with Jesus openly but at least he came. According to verse 2, it was the miracles of Jesus that convinced Nicodemus of the uniqueness of Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 23 says that while Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover, he performed miracles. And evidently, Nicodemus either saw them or was told of them, so he came to Jesus to investigate. We know from Jesus' response in verse 3 That the question on the mind of Nicodemus was this. Are you the one who is coming to set up the kingdom? We know the kingdom's promised throughout Hebrew scripture. Are you the one who's coming to set up the kingdom? But Nicodemus doesn't even get the chance to ask the question. Jesus responds to the question in the mind of Nicodemus before Nicodemus can even phrase the question. In verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born again, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The Jews were waiting for the Messiah to come to set up the earthly kingdom. But Jesus says here to Nicodemus, you'll never see the kingdom unless you're born again. And Jesus puts an exclamation point on that by saying, verily, verily, truly, truly, most assuredly, no man... No woman will ever see the kingdom of God or enter the kingdom of God unless he or she is born again. To be born again is a spiritual transformation that takes a person out of the kingdom of darkness and transfers him into the kingdom of the Son of God. That's what Jesus is saying. But Nicodemus is reluctant to accept this. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born When he is old, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, don't take this to mean that Nicodemus did not understand what Jesus was saying. The evidence points to the fact that Nicodemus did understand, at least somewhat, but he was reluctant to accept what Jesus was saying. He was tracking, but it was like, whoa, whoa, I don't like where you're going here, Jesus. I'm not comfortable with this. He was reluctant to accept what Jesus was saying. The same kind of thing goes on today. There are many people in our society who understand the gospel to some degree, but they just won't, they just don't want to let go and give in to the Lord. Lack of understanding isn't the problem as much as a lack of willingness. That's what was going on in the heart of Nicodemus. He was interested in Jesus. And he was interested in what Jesus had to say, but he was reluctant to give in and accept it. You see, the Jews knew about being born anew or born again. Whenever a man from another faith became a Jew, a Jewish proselyte, he was regarded as being reborn. The rabbis had a saying that went like this, quote, A proselyte who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child. So this wasn't really a foreign concept to Nicodemus. He just did not want to accept the fact that he, a religious giant, needed to be born anew. You see, religious people, and understand this, beloved, religious people are often the hardest to get through to when it comes to the issue of salvation. They have so many misconceptions cluttering the way, so many barriers cluttering the way and besides that most religious people feel they are good enough already they're not willing to let go of their religion that was the problem nicodemus was beginning to realize in this conversation allow me to quote from merrill c tenney as he comments on the response of nicodemus here in verse four he says this quote to assume that a man so astute as nicodemus should have thought the new birth to be literally physical is absurd. His question rather meant, I acknowledge that a new birth is necessary, but I am too old to change. My pattern of life is set. Physical birth is out of the question, and psychological rebirth seems even less probable. Granting the truth of what you say, Jesus, is not my case hopeless. G. Campbell Morgan paraphrases paraphrases the response of Nicodemus like this. Born again? Here I am. And what I am is the result of what I was an hour ago and yesterday and all the days of my past. My personality is the result of processes. Can this body of mine be turned back into embryonic form in my mother's womb? And if that cannot be, then how is the more difficult thing to be done that of remaking my personality, spirit, mind, and body, end quote. You see, the point is this. It's not that Nicodemus totally misunderstood what Jesus was saying. Don't read the passage that way. The problem was that even though Nicodemus was interested in what Jesus had to say, he was also at the same time reluctant to give in and accept it for himself. And that is why in verse 5, Jesus doesn't really explain the new birth. He simply reiterates its necessity. He says in verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, in case some are wondering, let me state and get this out of the way that this verse has absolutely nothing to do with baptism. Those who try to use this verse to say that you have to be baptized to be converted completely ignore the context of John 3 as well as the rest of the Gospel of John. I mean, if Jesus were saying here that baptism is necessary for salvation, why doesn't he say that anywhere else in John's Gospel? Over and over and over again in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about eternal life and how to have eternal life, and never does he say that baptism is is how you obtain eternal life. So there's no way that's what Jesus is saying here. Then what is he saying? The key to understanding what Jesus is saying here is to keep in mind that Jesus was talking to a Jewish rabbi, Nicodemus. Jesus was a master communicator because he always took into account his audience. So the key question, if we want to understand this verse... The key question is, what should Nicodemus have understood by this statement of Jesus? Or, to say it another way, what was Jesus saying to Nicodemus? If we ask that question, then we begin to see what Jesus meant by his statement, born of water and of the Spirit. When Jesus spoke these words, there is a passage that should have exploded in the mind of Nicodemus. And that is Ezekiel chapter 36. Turn back with me into Hebrew scripture for just a moment. After Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel chapter 36. Keep in mind that many of the Jewish rabbis had much of the Old Testament memorized. So Nicodemus, in all likelihood, would have known this passage. Ezekiel 36 is the Old Testament passage on the new birth. Notice how God describes it, beginning in verse 24. Ezekiel 36, verse 24 For I will take you from the, among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you, I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. As you can see here in this passage, the sprinkling of water is a reference to cleansing from sin. And that's exactly what Jesus was referring to in John 3, 5. Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, listen, unless someone is born of water, that is, cleansed of his sin, he can never enter the kingdom of God. Water was the symbol of cleansing for the Jewish people. In fact, the New Testament even uses water in this symbolic way sometimes. Ephesians 5.26 speaks of Jesus sanctifying the church and cleansing it with the washing of water by the word. And probably the best verse to see this same parallel is found over in Titus chapter 3. So as we go back to the New Testament, skip past John for just a moment and past 1 and 2 Timothy to Titus chapter 3. And remember, in John 3, 5, Jesus said a man must be born of water and the Spirit. We're trying to grasp what he meant by that. Titus 3.5 says the exact same thing and helps us understand it. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Here we go. Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus was saying to Nicodemus in John 3.5. Water is the symbol of cleansing, and the Spirit is the source of the power of regeneration. So in essence, what Jesus was telling Nicodemus was this. If we want to paraphrase it and just put it in our own words, Jesus was saying this. Nicodemus, unless you repent of your sin and are cleansed of it, and unless you are changed by the Holy Spirit of God, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And by the way, that's the same message the New Testament reiterates over and over and over again. When we are born again, our sins are washed. Our sins are forgiven. We are transformed by the Spirit of God. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. New things have come. That's the new birth. And the new birth is a necessity For anyone who desires to be a part of the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Now let's go back there to that text in John chapter 3. So Jesus continues to press this point on Nicodemus. He says in verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, Nicodemus, in and of yourself, you can't do anything about your predicament. But the Spirit of God can. A rebirth in the flesh would reproduce only flesh. So a man needs a rebirth by the Spirit of God. It's not good enough to turn over a new leaf. Because man needs new life. Man isn't sick, he's sinful. That's why we need the new birth. And that's what Jesus was trying to get Nicodemus to accept. In verse 7, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, this was hard for Nicodemus to accept. It would have been hard for any Jew to accept, just like it's hard for people today to accept. Men and women in our society don't want to admit that they need to be born anew. And if a man doesn't want to be born from above, he will purposely misunderstand the new birth. If a a man is reluctant to give in and be changed, then he will purposely close his eyes to the very power that can change him. That's what Nicodemus was doing. He could not accept the fact that he needed to be changed. He was a religious giant. And Jesus is telling him, that's not good enough, Nicodemus. You need to be changed. Nicodemus didn't want to believe that, so as a result, he was reluctant to see what Jesus was saying. Thus, Jesus illustrates it in earthly terms. Verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The activity of the wind It's a great earthly illustration of the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating the sinner. Think about this. You can't see wind blowing. You can see the results of wind blowing, papers blowing across the yard or tree limbs moving or whatever. You can't see wind blowing, but you can see the results. In the same way, you can't see the Holy Spirit moving as he gives new life to the repentant sinner, but you can certainly see the results of that in a person's life. Because when the Spirit of God gives new life, then that person is changed. That's what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus. But Nicodemus just did not want to grab hold of what Jesus was saying. In verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Again, the issue is not just misunderstanding. The issue was a reluctance to give in. And we know that because in the next several verses jesus gives a rebuke to nicodemus in verse 10 he says jesus answered and said to him are you the teacher of israel and you do not know these things by the way the greek word "know" here in this verse has the idea of experiential knowledge so jesus did not say verse 10 are you the teacher of israel and you don't understand these things that's not what he said he said are you the teacher of israel and you do not know these things in other words Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel and you have never experienced the new birth? You don't understand these things. You don't, you've never experienced these things. Verse 11, most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. You see the problem there? You won't receive our witness. The we here probably has reference to Jesus and John the baptizer. Jesus was saying, hey, listen, we know what we're talking about because our message came from heaven. We got our message from heaven, but you don't want to accept it. You don't want to receive our witness. You don't want to give in to what we're trying to tell you. Remember, John came preaching repentance. Jesus is saying here, unless you're cleansed of your sin, you'll never see the kingdom. Boy, Nicodemus didn't want to hear that. He didn't want to hear John's message of repentance, which was of heavenly origin. He didn't want to hear Jesus saying, you need to be cleansed of your sin. Verse 12, Jesus says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, Nicodemus, I've described the new birth to you in earthly terms, and you still won't accept it. How could you possibly accept deeper spiritual truths which have no earthly illustration. And again, notice here in verse 12, Jesus does not say that Nicodemus did not understand. He says Nicodemus did not believe. He said, I've told you this and you won't believe. The only reason Nicodemus didn't understand was because he wouldn't give in and accept what Jesus was saying. So in verse 13, Jesus puts even more weight on what he is saying. Verse 13, he says, No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. Jesus is the only authoritative source on heavenly truth. He's the only one qualified to speak as an absolute authority because he came from heaven. No one has ever visited heaven for a while and then returned to tell about it. Even, even when Paul was caught up to heaven, 2 Corinthians, he wasn't permitted to tell about it. So what Jesus is saying here in verse 13 is this. Nicodemus, you better listen to me. You better hear what I'm saying. I know what I'm talking about. I speak with all the authority of heaven, and you must be born again. In verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Here, Jesus uses an illustration that would have been very familiar to Nicodemus. The event Jesus alludes to is found in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. In that story, Israel was complaining against Moses and complaining against their circumstances, complaining against the Lord. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among them as a punishment. The serpents killed many of the people and made many others sick. When the people called out to the Lord, cried out to the Lord, when the people repented, God gave a cure to Moses for the people. It's a very curious cure. God told Moses to make a bronze serpent and raise it up on a pole for all to see. If the people looked at that serpent with eyes of faith, they were healed. So the serpent was was the emblem of sin under judgment, the symbol of sin under judgment. Jesus uses that story to illustrate his crucifixion. Jesus was crucified as the judgment of our sin, the judgment for our sin. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him sin who knew no sin. So Jesus was lifted up crucified as the judgment of our sin and if we look to him just as the people look to the bronze serpent we receive healing spiritual healing forgiveness that's what verses 14 and 15 are all about as moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness even so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life by the way just as a little side note And I don't have time to develop all the reasons why. But I personally believe that right there at the end of verse 15 is where Jesus stopped talking. And that in verse 16, what we have, this this tremendous verse that is, as I said earlier, maybe the most monumental in all the Bible. Verse 16 is when John was writing his gospel, writing about this story. John looked back and then summarized what Jesus had just taught. So in other words, if you have a red-letter Bible, I personally believe the red letters stop in verse 15. And then verse 16 is John's comment writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because John says this, after, Jesus, after he records what Jesus had to say to Nicodemus, John then adds this, for, let me explain this to you further, this is so important, John is saying, for God so loved the world, Or God loved the world in this way that He gave His only begotten Son, that is, His unique, one of a kind Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a statement! It was God who took the initiative in salvation, not man. God loved, God gave. That's Christmas. That's why this is Christmas in John's Gospel. God loved. God gave. Religion is man trying to earn favor with God, but the Bible says God took the initiative to reach man. All of this would have been extremely difficult for Nicodemus to grasp. As a Pharisee, he would have been brainwashed. He would have been conditioned to think that you you can earn your salvation by your works. In fact, you have to earn Your salvation by your works. Which is exactly what so many people think today. It's the same. Things haven't changed. People will not hear Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. It was July 2nd, 1505. Martin Luther, returning home from a visit with his parents, found himself caught in a violent storm. Terrified, he vowed to become a monk if he were allowed to live. Luther made it through the storm and fulfilled his vow, entering the Augustinian Order of Monks in Erfurt, Germany. By his own admission, he entered the monastery more out of constraint than commitment. Reflecting on the incident years later, Luther said this, Not freely or desirously did I become a monk, but walled around with the terror and agony of sudden death, I vowed a constrained and necessary vow. While at the monastery and as a friar at the University of Wittenberg, Luther diligently, even obsessively, performed his religious tasks. He frequently went to confession and dutifully fulfilled the imposed penances. But his hard work, his confessions, his penances never seemed enough. Anguished of soul, Luther wrestled with his own salvation. Hungering for acceptance by God, he realized his emptiness. Gnawing inside was the incessant, ravenous truth that his external righteousness was not enough. Here's how he worded it. For however irreproachably I lived as a monk, I felt myself in the presence of God to be a sinner with a most unquiet conscience, nor could I believe that I pleased him with my satisfactions. On a trip to Rome, which he thought would earn him some form of spiritual merit, he actually climbed the steps of Pilate's house on his knees. It is suggested by some church historians that this was where Luther first gained a true understanding of the gospel. As he climbed those stone hard steps of religious works, a verse came to his mind that changed his life forever. Changed his eternal destiny. Romans 1.17 The righteous man shall live by faith. Like a flash of lightning, the realization struck him. It is faith that justifies, not works. Luther looked back on that revelation as the time of his conversion. Here's what he said. And the reason I'm quoting is because you'll hear a reference to John 3 in this quote from Luther. He says this. At last I began to understand the justice of God as that by which the just man lives by the gift of God. The just man shall live by faith. At this I felt myself to have been, are you ready for this? Born again. At this I felt myself to have been born again and to have entered through the open gates into paradise itself. Luther had lived a rigorously religious life, pounding on heaven's door in the strength of his own works. Exhausted, he fell to his knees before that door and realized a liberating truth. Christ himself is the door. Beloved, the greatest Christmas gift ever given was when God gave his son greatest gift ever given is described right here in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world God loved the world this way you want to know how God loved the world here's how God loved the world God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son his unique one-of-a-kind son he gave him just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness he gave him to be lifted up he gave him to be crucified that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the greatest Christmas gift ever given. And the greatest gift you could ever receive is the gift of forgiveness and eternal life, which is received by receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you have not yielded, if you have not responded, there could be no better time than right now at this Christmas season. It is a fact that there are people who come to faith in Christ at Easter and Christmas because it's the time they expose themselves to the gospel. Maybe no other time in the year, but they expose themselves to the gospel. A couple weeks ago, I was heading out on a flight, and I walked through security, you know, TSA security, and this lady said to me, Pastor Brian, I didn't know where she recognized me, She said, as I'm walking through security, I just want you to know that seven years ago on Easter Sunday, I was sitting out there in the parking lot at the ticket gate for the parking, and I was listening to your your Easter sermon, and I gave my life to Christ. That's, That's the way it happens sometimes. People hear the gospel at Easter, at Christmas. Maybe the only time they will expose themselves to the gospel and the Spirit of God brings them to repentance and faith maybe that's you this morning maybe that's you you need to hear you need to hear the message of jesus to nicodemus and don't be like nicodemus don't push back don't resist it accept the fact that you need to be born again you're not good enough on your own none of us are good enough on our own you have to be born again you have to be born from above you have to be born anew you have to respond to John three sixteen. Put your name in this verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, that's you, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Turn to Christ, the Christ of Christmas. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow together in closing this morning, take a moment to reflect. And think about where you are at spiritually. Have you received the greatest gift ever given? The gift described in John 3.16? Have you responded to the whosoever of John 3.16? If not, I urge you to do so this morning. Hear what Jesus said to Nicodemus and realize that he said it to you and to me, to everyone, you must be born anew. You must be born again. Turn to Christ this Christmas and come to know the Christ of Christmas. Father, we are just overwhelmed with gratitude when we read John 3, We, Virtually everyone in this room, we, we, we all know it. We've memorized it. And it's a glorious, liberating truth that you love the world by giving your unique son to be lifted up just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness and that whoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, I pray for anyone here this morning who needs to respond personally to the whosoever, that he or she just... Right now, right here at this Christmas season, we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the greatest Christmas gift ever given, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life, the gift of new life in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.